Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your studies. So today we are going to talk about the number three and a spiritual journey. So I'm not even going to title this one Sea of Galilee because we're completely departing. We're taking a detour. There's a saying amongst the rabbis that rabbis always run late. They're always running behind on time. And the reason is, is everything they teach will lead to something else. And so you can teach one verse, but it's going to lead to another verse, which leads to another verse, and you keep going. So this is going to be a deviation because of one thing that I said last week, uh, but I think this will be enlightening for us. Uh, I'm continuing to be enlightened by it, the more you look at it, to talk about the number three and how it represents a spiritual journey. So that's going to be our entire topic today. God willing, by the end of this, your head will be spinning with the number three, but you'll catch on that when we see the number three in the scripture, it should cause us to pause for a second and then ask the question if, it's, if there's a clue to a spiritual journey happening. Now, I'd like to do a few housekeeping notes just for Fig Tree Ministry. So, of course, Fig Tree Ministries, we've got our, these lessons go up on YouTube. So YouTube, you can get, watch, of course, the video and see all the slides and the pictures. I also put it on uh, Apple Podcasts. So the audio goes to Apple Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts is always good if you want to take it with you. You can go, you know, listen to it in the car or while you're doing the dishes or whatever. You don't have to sit in front of the screen, and that can be helpful when listening to a, a teaching. If you ever need to go back and find a picture that I'm talking about, then you can go to YouTube and find about in the, at the time marker where we're at. That would help. Um, and we're also on Facebook. So we have a Facebook page. So you can follow that Facebook page, and we post the video on that Facebook page every week as well. And of course, for all of these, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Facebook, always subscribe to the channel. Give us a thumbs up if you like the video. Leave a comment. That always helps. Share with your friends or community. Any engagement, the way social media works, is any engagement with what's on the social media helps elevate that piece on social media. So a subscribe, a like, a comment, a share raises it amongst the computer algorithms. So it's always helpful to have that. And we always like to get feedback. Say, if there's a question of clarification, put it down in the uh, comment section, and then we'll address that to help out. Uh, one piece that is, we always put it in the description section. So on YouTube or in the podcast, in the description section is a link that you can get to our lesson plan. So each week, provide a lesson plan to follow along. This will just help your mind track with the lesson. You can go back and then review it. I'm a big proponent of taking notes. I want you to write your own thought down in your own handwriting. That helps you make whatever the concept is more concrete. So I'm a big believer in that and taking notes. And very often these handouts will have the references or something to help you down the road if you ever needed to go back and find what reference I was talking about. So that's available. And the link to that will be in the description section. All right, that's just housekeeping for uh, the ministry. So 
again, we're going to take a little bit of a spirit, our own little spiritual journey around the number three. And it's certainly a significant number in the Bible. So what we're going to do is travel back in your minds, at least. We can't go there physically, but we're going to travel back to a first century synagogue. This is what we see, the, the picture that you see on the screen. This is the synagogue at Magdala. They found this 13 years ago, I believe. Pretty amazing, because it is first century. The, the, the citizens of Magdala, as what, what, what the, the archaeologists believe happened was, as the Romans were sacking all of the cities in Galilee around 66 AD, that the, the citizens of Magdala took their own synagogue down. They took it apart because they find the stones placed all over the city, making secondary use of the stones. And then it was covered in a mudslide. So for 2,000 years, this sat under the, under the mud, and now you get to see it, and that's pretty amazing. So we're just going to transport ourselves to a synagogue, and we're going to do a little Bible study about a spiritual journey. And every synagogue in Galilee, this is at Capernaum, you can see it, Chorazin, and the synagogue at Gamla is a school. So the school at this synagogue sits right here, right where that it sits. It's a little room that sits right where the entrance to the synagogue would be. The students would sit on the stones and be taught by the rabbi. And you can see they found a stone here in the synagogue. It's built for a scroll. So it's like a table. You can set the scroll down. It's got two indents for the, the, um, the handles of the scroll to go in, so you can then read your, your Bible in a Bible study with the rabbi. So that's what we're going to do today. Take a little journey to sit in the synagogue there and take a spiritual journey around the number three. Now, I mentioned earlier, I made one comment last week. I made one comment about the number three and how that in the Bible it represents spiritual journey, but we didn't have time to talk about it. So what we're going to do today is look only at the number three, whether it's the number three or the concept of the third day. And it's often, now sometimes it can just be the number, and that's that's also the case. It is often used just as the number, but when you find it in a, in, a, in a narrative that kind of stands out, you say, is that possibly some kind of spiritual journey happening? Now, when we see the number three, immediately two things come to mind, or I would assume come to mind. The first one is Jesus. Three days or three nights, three days and three nights in the grave. It's a form of spiritual journey. He goes, descends to Sheol, separated from God, only to be restored on the third day in the resurrection. That's one. The other concept is the Trinity, of course. So that stands out to us as a, an important three. Now, I'm not going to have those in my, we'll talk about a little bit, but I'm not going to address those texts specifically because we're all aware of those. What I want to do is go look at the background of number three. It can help us understand the spiritual nature of this number. So, it, it came from this verse. It's actually verse 2, so that's a mistake. I made a couple mistakes, and I'll point them out along the way, but it's actually Mark 8, verse 2, and it says this. I must have had the number 3 on my mind as I was putting this together, because I put Mark 8, 3. So Jesus said this, I have compassion for these people. This is, this is now the feeding of the 4,000. Now remember last week, feeding of 4,000 is Gentile. So there's something about the completion of the Gentiles coming into the fold of Jesus as the bread of the earth, or the bread of the world. So Jesus is the sustaining bread. For the Jews, yes. For the Gentiles, absolutely. And so that the seven in the feeding of the 4,000 represents not only the pagan nations, but the completion. There's something complete happening. So Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days. Now, most of the time we read past that. We, we just kind of, okay, he's just giving us a random detail. 
But I don't think that's random. I think there's something about, he's telling you, even the Gentiles are on a spiritual journey. And by the end of today, I think you'll have an appreciation as we raise our awareness of the number three, that even the Gentiles are on a spiritual journey towards restoration, because that's part of the spiritual journey. Now, we can argue whether that's the case or not, but let's, let's go through all these examples today and see if maybe it doesn't, again, just simply raise our awareness of the number three and its use in the Bible. All right, so a spiritual journey. Now, let me apologize ahead of time. I'm going to be moving very fast. There are so many examples from the Old Testament. It's, it was overwhelming. I put too many on your sheet that I'm not going to get to. I'm going to move real fast between scriptures, so I apologize. I know many of you like to follow along in your Bible, um, but in the interest of time, I've got to keep it going. I think the main point, the main concept you will see by the time we're done is how important three is when it comes to the journey of restoration. So it may just help just to uh, sit back with your handout, and you can always go back later and reread the text. So three, as I mentioned, is the spiritual journey, and we want to raise the awareness of not only three, but there's the third day. So we're going to see both of these. Three is used, and then third day. And of course, Jesus was raised on the third day. Very important. It's a spiritual journey that seems to imply some kind of restoration. I'll show you a text, probably the key text that for today from Hosea, but it's a spiritual journey of restoration. And, of course, Jesus, as he descends down into Sheol, down into the underworld, and then rises back up out of the grave, and he's restored. That's the, that's the restoration that happens on the third day. And then there's another piece to this, and you'll see it in Hosea. It's about restoration, and then being back in the presence of God. So we notice that Jesus and the resurrection, he's back into the presence of God. I, Hosea will specifically say he's back in the, you're, we're back in the presence of God, and throughout this you'll see how that is, gets interwoven inside the number three. All right, so there's, that's where we're going today. Now, this text, I would like you to turn there. It's about the only time I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible today. It's Hosea, because this is really one of the critical pieces that we see the entire concept of, of a spiritual journey and the number three. So Hosea 6, and it's verses 1 and 2. And what we're going to see is the idea that of separation. The Israelites are separated from God. They're not in his presence. That's the crisis when you get taken to Babylon and in exile, because in the ancient mind, gods were localized. And you want to come back to Jerusalem and back to that temple because that's where God is seated. Well, you get taken away, and now where's God? And that becomes a spiritual crisis for the people. So Hosea. 6, 1 and 2, verse 1 starts out, Come, let us return to the Lord, right? They're separated from the Lord. Unfortunately, they realize they've been punished. He has torn us to pieces, but he'll heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. So that's the idea. There's, it's a, they're separated. There's separation involved. Verse 2, then, goes on. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he'll restore us that we may live in his presence. So on the third day, there's that phrase, third day. And what's God going to do? Well, it's a movement towards restoration and that you may live in his presence. So it's the movement towards restoration. So is it possible that when Jesus says, they have been with me for three days, there's restoration coming for the Gentiles as well. And that's a powerful 
concept to come out. What the disciples were really struggling with that too. So this is our main little text. This obviously is one that people point to when you talk resurrection. They go right to Hosea, because on the third day, there's a restoration happening. So we know that one. Now, that's Hosea. I want to show you, though, there's another way to, there's a way to think about this visually, because everything in the Hebrew Bible is concrete. They want to think about visual, smell, touch, feel. Give it to me concrete. Don't give me an abstraction. So one idea of how you can visualize any spiritual journey, and the journey from separation to being with God, all spiritual journeys are an ascending, they have an ascending nature. You rise up to God. God is up. If I said, where's God? We all point up. Where's the underworld? You all point down. That's where chaos is underneath you. God is up. I'm feeling up today. Boy, you look down today. So we use those words to describe something phenomenological that's happening as we experience the kingdom of God. So there's an ascending nature. We ascend at least in the, I'm going to use the Old Testament term, Sheol. Let me put that on there. Sheol, I don't want to use the word hell because hell comes with a lot of theological baggage. I, I just want to talk about the idea that, that Sheol is the place of separation from God. And hell is separation from God too, I agree. But Old Testament, because that's where we're going to be most of the day, is when you descend down into the underworld, the problem is you're separated from God, and that's not where you want to be. You want to ascend back to the presence of God. So from Sheol, separation, ascending back up, and what's at the top is God or heaven. There's order versus the chaos of Sheol. There's peace. So there's an ascending nature. You can think of it visually as some rising uh, nature as you ascend towards God. Now, it's not only visual in the sense that that's how we talk about God and the world, that's our cosmology, it's also geographical because they, it's, everything's connected to the land of Israel. So, if you're in Egypt, you go up to Israel. Why do you go up to Israel? Because that's up, that's where God lives. So you go up to Israel. If you're in Israel, you go up to Jerusalem. Everywhere in your Bible says they're going up to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, you're going up. Why? Because that's where God lives. He's at the top. And when you get to Jerusalem, you go up to the temple. The word that's used even today for Jews making a pilgrimage to Israel means to go up. They're going up to Israel. And then you go up to Jerusalem, and then you go up to the temple. So all of those are an upward ascending nature. And you can add geography in that as well. That's one. Second, here's another thing the Bible does. It depicts it because the Bible loves concrete. We live in the land. We, we compare it. We make everything a metaphor from the land is a mountain. So where does God live for a mountain? He's at the peak, and that, that basically is ubiquitous across the ancient world. But where does Jesus go to be transfigured? Up on a mountain. Where does Moses go? Up on a mountain. So a mountain is representative of that spiritual journey upward, and that's the place that you meet God. It's the place where heaven and earth connect. Now, the way the Bible describes this often is it starts down here in the watery abyss. So you begin in the watery abyss. That's the chaos, the sea the underworld, and then you ascend the mountain towards God, and that's your whole journey. Now, how is trudging, you know, when you're trudging up a mountain, say Mount Cowles here in San Diego, how's the journey? Well, it's a struggle. You're, you, you can't see very far in front of you. Your head is down. You're step by step the whole way towards God. That's your walk towards God. So it's a spiritual journey, and the mountain is the metaphor for that. So we'll see this one today too as we're going through these texts. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start through the Old Testament. All of these are on your sheet, so you can just follow along, and it's probably best. I'm going to move pretty quickly, again, in the interest of time. 
and to look at some of these big spiritual movements so that you'll at least be aware of them. You can go back and read the text um, when you have some time later and then contemplate what's being said. The first one I'll start with, and I mentioned this last week, is Abraham. So Abraham is on a spiritual journey. And he's going to be tested by God. So Abraham is going to be tested by God. And it's depicted as a type of spiritual journey. So in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 5, it says, Sometime later, Abraham test, or God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham. Abraham replied, here I am. That's the standard reply to God in the Bible. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. So it's, it's, a, it's a journey to a mountain. God's going to show him a mountain. You have to ascend the mountain. Now, at this point, Isaac is, God just said, go sacrifice your son. You have, you have some kind of, something's being separated from God, at least, in the sense that there's going to be death. But is that the end of the story? No, because Isaac is restored. So it's a, it's a picture of restoration as they climb the mountain, and then God steps in to make sure that Isaac's, his life is essentially restored. So verse, th- uh, verse 4, and here's the key. Verse 4 starts, on the third day. So the text is sending you towards a mountain. Then it says, on the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the place in a distance. So he's arrived and you get the number three. Now that's kind of a random three to put in there. Now it could be they're just telling us it was the third day, but why use that phrase? That's a, it's a key phrase in the Bible, and so it stands out. Now he says this. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back. Now, the first thing I want to point out is, about a year and a half ago, we had a whole class on donkey. Because the word for donkey, the the root Hebrew word for donkey, is also the word for material. So, wherever you, not wherever, very often a spiritual journey, somebody is sitting on top of a donkey. Because the donkey represents material. What does a donkey do? What's the, what is a, what's the job of a donkey? To carry the material world around. In this story of Abraham, you get a donkey on the way there. Abraham is still in the material world. Now he's going to go on a spiritual journey. And I, we noted a, about a year and a half ago, as the story goes on, the donkey is never mentioned again. It's like as Abraham comes off the mountain, he's now gone up into a spiritual plane. So even that word donkey can indicate a spiritual journey, just like Jesus was on a spiritual journey when he rode into uh, on the triumphal entry. But we also note this, Abraham says to his servants, we will worship God, we being him and Isaac, and then we will come back to you. Now, how does, how does Abraham know that? How does Abraham know we will come back to you? He was just told he's going to sacrifice his son. Well, Abraham has faith. He trusts that when God told him that, it, that the seed, Isaac would be the, the seed through which the promise would come, that God will fulfill that whole point, third day, he's on a spiritual journey, and it's a journey of restoration where the life of Isaac is restored, essentially. That's a a big one, and you can go back and read that whole text. Notice how the donkey disappears as Abraham, uh, as the, the story ends. Okay, Moses. What about Moses? Well, he's on a spiritual journey too, no doubt. He's gonna go find God, and the first thing we'll note about Moses is he happens to be the third child. Think about that one. So the third child of some parents becomes the one who finds God and then leads his people to God. So Moses has an older sister named Miriam, and then he has an older brother named Aaron. So you have third child. Well, that's interesting. How unique that the third child is going to lead a spiritual journey. The story goes, as Moses is being born, This is Exodus 2, 1 through 4. I'll just read it. 
Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now if you read that, you assume he's the firstborn, but he's not. Later we find out, in verse 4, we'll find out he has a sister who's old enough to stand on the bank of the Nile. So she became pregnant, gave birth to a son. When she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So we get a three showing up at the beginning of Moses' life. Because the Pharaoh wants to kill all the newborn Hebrews, Hebrew males. When she could not hide, hide him, no, when she could hide him no longer, she put him in a papyrus basket. Now, one key is this word basket here. Same word for the ark. That's what that little footnote is. She put him in an ark and coated it with tar and pitch, just like Noah's ark. So Moses is going to be on a journey coming out of the waters, being carried by, saved by the ark in the waters, and he's going to lead them on a journey. She placed the child in it and put it among the reeds of the Nile. So he's in the water. That's, that's the key. And then verse 4, here's where we learn about his sister. His sister stood at a distance. So Moses is on a spiritual journey, and it actually matches this spiritual journey. He starts out in the waters of the Nile. He's in the ark. He's being carried in the ark through the waters. And then he's going to ascend. We'll see in a minute. He's going to go find God. And where's God? God's at a mountain. In fact, it's the mountain of God. And we learn this in the very next chapter. Exodus 3.1 tells us, that Moses was tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flocks to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses is on a journey. Three, three, mo or three months he was hidden. He's in the water. He's moving from the chaos, being separated from God, and finding God. He's the leader. He has to go on the spiritual journey first. Because now, we're going to lead the whole nation. God's going to now call him and say, I want you to lead the nation. But the, the, one of the key things is that we have to note that Moses went on the spiritual journey first. You can't take someone on a spiritual journey if you haven't gone on that journey yourself. And that's so important to be able to lead somebody. So when we get to read about the children of Israel, one of the first things we notice in Exodus is that God tells them, God says to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. This is what he, he wants Moses to tell Pharaoh. Let us take a three-day journey. Now, why a three-day journey? God says, look, go to Pharaoh. Tell him, I met with God, and I want to take a three-day journey out to, to sacrifice with my God. And so many people say, why three days? This is, invokes endless questions on these, uh, you know, on, on those websites where people ask questions, Bible questions. Why the three-day journey? So even the Israelites are noted as this journey is going to be something in the, in the number three. Now, what about the Israelites? How about their journey? Did they start, did they have to go through some kind of watery abyss to end up at the mountain of God? Of course they did, the watery abyss of the Red Sea. And the, what they're going to do is proceed through the watery abyss, and then they're going to go up, and they're going to find God at the mountain of God. So we've got the same type of journey. Israel itself is on a spiritual journey. The book of Exodus is a gigantic spiritual journey. It's got all the markers. Even your spiritual journey is represented in Exodus. You were a slave. You were the slave to your own totalitarian nature that wants to keep you enslaved to sin. You're the Pharaoh. That's part of us is the Pharaoh that wants to keep us in sin. And then God delivers us through the, the baptismal waters, and he wants us to ascend to meet him. And what, the one part, you know, we Christians, we know all the beginning of the Exodus. We know the, the Pharaoh and the ten plagues and going to the, uh, the, the Red, crossing the Red Sea and the ending up at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. But whoa, after the Ten Commandments, we start to lose th stuff in Exodus because you start getting into the how to build the tabernacle. And that, you know, when you're reading that, you just want to give up because 
God forces you to read it twice. He puts it in there twice in Exodus as a test. He wants to test to see if you can get through the book. The point is, though, when you get to the very end of Exodus, chapter 40, it's the presence of God dwelling with the people. That's the journey. We all want to invite the presence of God to dwell with us. We're on a spiritual journey as well. So that, that's the, one of the most important pieces about that, the ending of Exodus. The presence of God is dwelling powerfully in their midst. midst excuse me. Okay, now, Israel goes through the waters. They, get, they go through the Red Sea. They're heading out to the mountain of God. What happens when they get to the mountain of God? And watch how many threes are in this chapter. It's crazy. Now, I want to let you know, I had to use the NASB, and uh, I made a mistake on your handout. And I want, to, I want to use this, my mistake, as an illustration for Bible translations. The phrase third day shows up in this text, but when the NIV translated a sentence, I'll show you in a minute, because it repeats, it's like third day, third day, the NIV took one of the third days out. And um, so I had to go use the NASB because to show you that it's actually in there. And that's a little frustrating. You know, you, you want to trust your Bible, but it's, it's, a, it's a translation. And so when they're translating it, they often will make it easier to read. Sometimes things are left out what's actually in the Hebrew text. So when we're doing a specific study like this, all I'm saying is read multiple versions. Okay, Exodus 19. They finally get, they go, they're through the waters. They're in the desert. They finally get to God. And look how the, the Exodus 19 starts. In the third month. Ah, they're in the third month. They just left. They, uh, uh, Passover was in the first month. Now they're in the third month. Random? Maybe not. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, came to the wilderness of Sinai. And then we're going to get a whole series of third days. Watch this. So we go down to verse 10 and 11. This is the one, the NIV, I had to, I had to go search out after I had written your uh, handout. Verse 11, Mo God is talking to Moses. He says, have them ready for the third day. Aha. There it says, third day. For on the third day, it's repeated, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in front of all the people. You think there's something important about third day? God is going to meet his people on the third day after they've separated themselves, consecrated themselves. Then you get verse 15 and 16. Moses says to the people, be ready for the third day. Set yourself apart. So it's repeated again. So it came about on the third day, verse 16. Ah, look how many times this is all happening in, in Exodus 19. And now on that third day, when God shows up to meet you, it, when it was morning and there was thunder and lightning and flashes of a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet, and all the people trembled as God is showing up. Why so many thirds? That's the question we want, to, we, want to, we want to raise our conscious awareness of all of these threes happening. And part of that is because it helps us understand that there's a spiritual journey going on. It's them going to find God. So, okay. There's more. I, I need to move on. Let me show you two that you're going to be familiar with in some way, shape, or form. I'm going to skip to numbers because you all know this priestly blessing, but there's a number, there's a three going on in this one. So the priestly blessing goes like this. And what we're looking for is how many times the sacred name of God, that's yud heh vav -Hey, in your Bible, the Lord. So how many times the name of God shows up in this very important blessing? Well, three times. The Lord bless you. That's the that's Yud -Heh Vav -Heh, The Lord, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. There it is again. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. There it is again. Three times the sacred name of God shows up in one of the most important blessings there is, and the blessing is three verses. And what happens when you blessing when you bless this over the people? 
God says, verse 27, I will put my name on the Israelites and bless them. You want to bless your grandchildren? Put God's name on them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And God promises, I'll put my name on them and bless them. It's a great way to think about praying over your blessing your grandchildren with that blessing. But three times the name of God shows up, so it becomes a powerful prayer. Now that's one powerful prayer, that three times the name of God. How about this one? It's called the Shema. You guys know the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment of all the 613 commandments? What's the most important commandment? And he quotes the Shema. And he says, hear, O Israel. Shema means hear. So this word here is the Shema. Shema not only means hear, to hear, but it's a, it's a hearing of obedience. There is no word for obedience in Hebrew. The word that's used for obedience is Shema, to hear. So hearing God is about hearing and obeying God. So hear, O Israel, and now watch how many times the, the, the sacred name of God shows up. The Lord our God, there's one. The Lord is one, there's two. Love the Lord your God, there's three. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And so oddly enough, it's balanced with what you're supposed to do. Love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So the name of God shows up three times. You're supposed to react, or, or that's your, three times your heart, your soul, and then all of your strength goes into to loving God. So that's a powerful piece with number three. Now, if you happen to have your hand up, there was a third page that I gave you. And I wanted to give you the text of these. It's some rabbinic writings. Now, if you don't have your handout, you can check your email, and they're in the email. There's On the third page is a, a few rabbinic writings. They all have to do with the number three. But I want to show you one of them that has to do with the Shema. And this always blows people's mind, because generally, when you bring up Trinity to our Jewish brothers and sisters, it gets rejected. And, and there's a lot of baggage that comes along with that throughout our history of the church and Jews, um, how they've been living together for 2,000 years. But this comes from the, a, a document or a book called the Zohar, and that's Jewish mysticism. So these are the these are the people who go deep into contemplation about God and then express what they're contemplating. And I want to show you how he contemplates the Shema. And notice the number three and how close this gets to the Trinity. So it starts like this. He starts quoting. He quotes uh, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai is one. That's the Shema. That's Adonai Ahad. That means is one. So he quotes it. And then he says this. These three are one. Aha, there's three. And they're one. How can the three, how can the three names be one? How can these three names be one? And then he says, only through the perception of faith. In the vision of the Holy Spirit. In the beholding of the hidden eye alone. It's only through our faith that we can see this tri- triune nature of God. So it is with the mystery of the threefold divine, this, this writer says, the manifestations designated by Adonai Eloheinu Adonai, three modes which yet form one unity. Have you heard of this before? This is a Jewish writing, and that's remarkable when you see something like that, but it's the mystical side that says, I'm looking at God, and he's got a triune nature to him. And we celebrate and say, yes, we know. But that's based on that, a reading of the Shema. Now, I put another one on there. You'll have to read that and contemplate that yourself. But again, this is, uh, see how important the number three is, even within all of the, in the rabbinic writings. Okay. 
I'm going to keep going on your handout. And I know I'm, again, I'm sorry I'm moving fast, but I want to get to the, to the end. And I think you can just see how important these threes are. Now, one of them I left out, or actually two of them I left out. Uh, you get to the book of Joshua. You can read it in Joshua. God says, hey, on the third day, you're going to cross into the new land, right? The nation is going to be restored to the land on the third day. And then, it, then chapter 2 goes and it says, and they, they went through the camp, and on the third day, that now the ark splits the water. And you see the same thing. You have, you have the nation going through the chaotic waters. They're going up to Israel, because you always go up to Israel, and there's restoration. So you can read that in Joshua. But it's the same thing. Jonah. We all know Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And what, that not, what it depicts is the whale is going down to Sheol. That's what Jonah says. Sheol is, I'm separated from God. And that three-day, three-night journey out of, from Sheol, back to the presence of God. And then he goes off, and he finally, Jonah finally gets the hint, and he goes off to Nineveh. And then when he gets to Nineveh, it says it took, he took a three-day journey through Nineveh, meaning he's on a spiritual journey through Nineveh as well. So it shows up twice in the book of Jonah, which we're all familiar with. All right, so those are two more examples, a couple more examples. Here's another one from the, just if you think about the Israelites themselves. The Israelites are a divided people. The is, you have the Israelites at the bottom, that's the majority of the people. Then you have the Levites from the tribe of Levi. And then within the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron, the priests. And notice there's an ascension happening. Because who are the people who bring you closest to God who's at the top? The priests, they sit, and they're supposed to be the ones that are the most set apart, that are the most holy. And when priests become corrupted, the whole thing starts to go bad. And that's where all the prophets have to step in. But that's Israelites, Levites, priests. So you even have a threefold nature to the people. What about the Hebrew Bible? What about the Bible that God gave them? Well, there's a threefold nature to the Bible. So if, if you talk to a Jewish friend, uh, you, your Hebrew Bible, if you want to call it the, if you want to talk to your Jewish friend and use their language, you call the Hebrew Bible Tanakh. That's the word. It's the Tanakh. And you say, well, what is Tanakh? Is that a Hebrew word? No, it's an acronym. It gives you the three sections to the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. The Torah is the first section, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im, that's the N, Tanakh, the Nevi'im. Nevi'im, im, plural, prophets. So you have the Torah, the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, that's the K, that's the writings. So again, honor the Hebrew Bible for what it is. If you're talking to your Jewish friend, you could say Tanakh. They'll probably be surprised. Well, maybe not today. 50 years ago, they would have been surprised if you said that. So even the Hebrew Bible is divided into threes. Jesus, when he, uh, he's talking to his disciples, it's in Luke 24, he divides the, the, he says everything that's been written about the law, the prophets, and he says the Psalms, which is the first book of the writings. So he divides his Bible up into those same three categories. Okay, all of that, I'm going to, all of this, watch how this all comes together in this one rabbinic saying. So again, this is at the top of your, that third sheet that I have for you. It comes from the Talmud. Now that's not the mystical writings, but this is the Jewish writing, um, Talbu, Talmud, the, the category, or the, it's in Shabbat. If you're looking up the Talmud, you can type in Shabbat 88a, and you'll find that in the Talmud. But listen to the way the, the writer describes God. Blessed is the compassionate one who gave, and watch this, a threefold Torah, that's what we just looked at, to a threefold nation, through a third child, after three days of preparation, in the third month. So you have the threefold Torah, Tanakh. You have a threefold nation, Israelites, Levites, priests, through the third child, that's Moses. After three days, that was what the three days right in front of Mount Sinai, in the third month. 
So he's taking all these threes and saying, look how important this is. And according to Jewish tradition, this year, just last Monday, in fact, was Pentecost. Or, well, we call it Pentecost. That's Greek. Shavuot, the festival of weeks. And according to Jewish tradition, it happened 3,333 years ago. That's their tradition. So this year is a 3333. 3,333 years ago, on the third month, they had three days of preparation through the third child to a threefold nation, and God gave them a threefold Torah. Now that's crazy. That's a lot of threes. Okay. It's, I hope, I, my whole point is to show you just how, how much, there are so many examples I had to keep whittling down and whittling down and trying to figure out which one I was going to give you. And I, I want to end on this because it's so cool, and I didn't put this one on your sheet. So just, you'll, you can go back and read it, but it's so cool. Even creation, creation itself, I want you to think about this. Creation itself, Genesis 1. Genesis 1 starts out with the watery abyss. In the beginning, was God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty. It's, there was, the spirit was moving over the deep, the watery abyss, the chaotic waters of that beginning. And what day do we finally find life in Genesis 1? You get light and dark are separated. You get the waters are separated, and it's on day three that you get life finally shows up in the form of the, the waters are divided from the land, and the land begins to produce plants. And this is huge. It's life is being restored on the third day. Now, what's so cool about the third day is that you get a double blessing on the third day. I'll show you that in a minute. It's the only day of creation that gets a double blessing. And it was good. So life is being restored out of the chaos, and it's on the third day. And oh, by the way, plants die and resurrect every year. So you get another association with three and resurrection. So here's what Genesis 1 says about the third day. God says, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. This is where life is going to show up. And it was so. God called the dry land, or the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters together, and he called them the seas, and God saw that it was good. That's the first blessing. Then God said, let the land produce life, seeds and trees and plants, and bear fruit all according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. That's the double blessing right there. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. So three gets a double blessing. Now, in Jewish tradition, Jewish tradition, a traditional wedding is held on the third day of the week. It's Tuesday for us. They don't call it, to, well, at least they didn't call them by pagan gods. Two is the, I think, the god Mars, and we celebrate Tuesday because it's the celebration of Mars. They call it the third day. And why do you get married on the third day? Because that's a double blessing. So Bonnie and I were walking through the old quarter of Jerusalem. This is a number of years ago, and it happened to be a Tuesday, and we, we, hadn't, we didn't know any of this. We're walking through on a Tuesday, and we're going through the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem, and there's weddings all over the place happening, Orthodox weddings. And we were like, wow, why are, it's like five o'clock in the afternoon. Why are all these weddings happening? We couldn't figure it out. So we ended up at a little shop. Um, it's called Shorashim of the Old City, and it's a biblical shop. So they, they cater to a lot of Christian groups that come through there. We ended up inside that shop, and I mentioned to the to the the person who owned it, I said, hey, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of weddings going on. What's, what's up with that? And he says, well, that's the traditional day. This is where I learned about it. He says, because there was a double blessing, it was good on the day three, you get married on the third day. And then he says this to me, which was a little bit embarrassing. He says, well, what about, what about the New Testament? 
What does the New Testament say? And I'm thinking, I have no idea what the New Testament says about third day and weddings. He goes, what day was the wedding that Jesus was at? Ah, so check this out. The wedding in Cana. Well, it's the wedding in Cana. Cana is the word for zealous. We say Cana. That's anglicized. Cana. The wedding in Cana. It's on the third day. On the third day, a wedding took place. Of course it did. Why? Because that's when you get married in, the, in, in Israel. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, in Cana. And is there a double blessing for the wedding from Jesus? Absolutely. He turns water into wine. So it's, this Bible is way more connected than we can even imagine. And again, I left out, I had to leave out so much. Um, but so much is happening with that three and restoration and your spiritual journey, and then even getting into the idea of the triune nature of God. So I hope that at least shows you that when you're, as you're reading your Bible and your conscious awareness of the number three is raised, that you'll say, aha, they'll jump out at you. It's, uh, it just helps you read the text more enjoyably when you know that these little things are in there and they can help explain so much about um, what the Bible is attempting to communicate to us. So all of that, that whole thing right there that you just saw about the number three was simply to explain why I said last week that it uh, represents a spiritual journey. So I hope that is, I was able to illustrate really how deep that number three in the third day is. Yes, okay, and for all of you Bible study folks, how many people were saved on that Pentecost? 3,000. 3,000, oh, coincidence? It's not a coincidence. There's something being restored here. <laughs>